this relationship series has been fun so far. It's been, uh, you know, we remember probably that the bottom line regarding all of our relationships is one principle. Clear the stage and allow God to be the primary relationship in our life. And when we do, and when we go, instead of receiving from any of these other relationships, we receive all we need from God, we become so much more effective in the other relationships, right? And that's the principle that that has been across the, the, the series. Now, today we're talking about authority and how we relate to authority. We've talked about how we relate to our church, how we relate to our family, how we relate to friends, and uh, we've talked about those different kinds of relationships. Today, it has to do with authority, relating to authority. So I want us, before we get started here, to just think through in your mind who are the authority figures in your life. We all function under some form of authority. And so think about it. Who's governmental authority? Who, who is it in, in your life who provides governmental authority? Maybe at work, who's authority? Maybe at church, who is authority? Maybe at home, for some of us, we still have authority. Anybody? <laughs> there's, but think through the authorities in our life. And especially if there's any that are hard to function under. You know, just think through the authority relationships in our life. Get a picture of those people and let's pray. God, we want your mind and we want your heart on how to relate to authority. We want your mind and your heart in every relationship in our life. And as we focus today on how we relate to authority, we ask that you would bless us with your heart and your mind. In Jesus' name, amen. So one city serves as the birthplace of America. Which city is that? Philadelphia. If you go to Philadelphia to find the birthplace of America, you're probably going to go to one building in particular. What building is that? Independence Hall. In Independence Hall, there was a document that was signed that really served as the birthing of our nation. What document was that? Declaration of Independence. Independence. Independence Hall, Declaration of Independence. Is independence, in general, a good thing? That's a tough question, isn't it? I mean, we raise our children to become independent, ultimately, right? And we, we don't want to still be changing their diapers at 30, you know? That's just not a pretty picture. I, I urge you not to picture it, please. The, uh, <laughs> and yet, at 13... We don't want our children to feel that they're completely independent, do we? They shouldn't be. There's always a level at which we're supposed to be dependent on some things and independent of other things. Independence isn't necessarily a positive or negative word, but how about an attitude of independence? We, uh, Jen and I uh, had a, have a movie at the house that we've been watching recently. Someone at the church uh, lent us this movie. I, I think it's a Disney movie. It's an animated movie. Uh, about, it's called Spirit, and it's about this horse. It's actually about colonialism in the West, about the military and the railroad are moving out West, and the Native Americans and all the wildlife, they better get out of the way. You know, that's kind of the... But what, the, what happens is, is there's this horse, and he's like a champion among horses. And it's actually, the movie's kind of funny because it's actually narrated from the perspective of the horse. Like the horse is talking, you know, telling his story of what he sees take place. And he's like this amazing wild stallion, you know. And when they come out, the general uh, uh, or the captain of, of the brigade that's coming out 
tries to tame this horse and tries to ride this horse. And you see this one, this one scene where he's had him hitched to the post without food or water because every time someone tries to ride him, he throws the, the person off. So he hitches him to the post for three days, no food or water, and then the, the captain sits on his back and starts digging those spurs into, his, into him and gets that bit in his mouth and is doing all this stuff. And yet this horse is, according to the Native American friend that he makes, the spirit that cannot be tamed. You know, and he there's this theme song that goes in the background saying called "Get Off My Back." You know, and you see this horse like kicking him off and all this stuff. And the, it's funny because what it's actually doing is it's kind of comparing and contrasting different things happening in America in that day, and it's saying that the spirit of this horse is like the spirit of America, like "Get Off My Back." You know, and that's kind of what it's saying. Uh, that there's the, this independence about it, and the whole movie has to do with this horse who's like, I don't, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I roam free on the wild plains. Don't restrict me. And so there's this, there's this kind of thought, you know, uh, in in all of us. There's a piece of us that doesn't want to be reined in, that doesn't want a bit in our mouth, that doesn't want spurs on the side of us. And can you blame us? Because when it, particularly when it comes to authority, I mean, we've seen authority used in ways that are entirely inappropriate, haven't we? And so in the way that the colonialism was moving out west and the, and the picture of the horse and the Native American, you see them being a kind of abused by inappropriate authority. Well, in the same way, how many places can we look across our, our history and across our land and see the abuse of power? And we're not just talking about Hitler and Stalin. They're the easy ones to go to, you know. But we're talking about in our own environments, in our own families, in our own country. I mean, look at the lineup of some of the last few presidents over the last couple decades. I mean, one caught in a financial scandal, one caught in an adulterous scandal, one with the lowest approval ratings of all time because no one thinks that there was wise decisions made. I mean, over and over again, you know, being let down by authorities. And then if you put too much stock in an authority, they might get assassinated anyway, you know? Like a Martin Luther King or a JFK or something like that. And, and the idea of trust and authority becomes something that's disappointing. And some of us have, uh, some, some in this service here, worked for big institutions that let us down, you know, and, and didn't take care of us over the long haul. And trusting in, in a system and an authority can become a really difficult thing. And yet, if we follow our line of reasoning that says, you know, life would be a whole lot easier if the authority just didn't breathe down my neck and let me do my thing. If we follow that to its logical conclusion, it leads to a system of thought called anarchy, where there is no authority, where there is no government, and each man does what is right in his own eyes. That's actually a quote from Scripture, from the book of Judges. Was that a good time in the history of Israel? Oh, it was a terrible time in the history of Israel. Because what we forget is, is that we all are fallen humans. And if each person is left up to their own devices, they won't have good will. They'll have negative will toward one another. And they won't function out of a conscience. It'll be more like the Wild West, who the person with the fastest draw is the one who ends up with the money. And if you're an entrepreneur and you don't have much of a conscience in a place where there's no authority, you might be able to make a buck. But if you're the average person who's not as quick with the draw, or if you're a child, or if you're someone who just can't quite keep up, it's not a safe place to be. The deception is that freedom exists where there is no structure or authority that's breathing down my neck telling me what to do. That's the deception. 
The truth is, is that God created authority and systems and structure for us to be safe in order to have true freedom to function under God's authority. Romans 13.1 says this, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Did you hear that? Listen again. Let every person be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Wow. That's kind of hard to swallow, actually. This is not the restriction of our freedom. In, in many ways, God says that he creates this for our freedom. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, it says, I urge then, first of all, that prayers, requests, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. God wants us to live peaceful lives in godliness and holiness. And so in order to give us an environment where we can function that way, he tells us to do what? What does he tell us to do in this passage? To pray for our authority. He puts a structure in place, and whether or not that structure runs well, our call is to pray for that authority and support that authority because it's designed so that we can live the life that we're called to live within it. Now, this does not mean that a person's value is based on where they fit in the system. Let me explain. Do we think here at Parker Ford Church that parents are more valuable than children? No. Do we believe that if you're old, you're more important or if you're young, you're more important than someone who's old? No. Do we believe that if you're a boss, that, that you're more valuable than a person who's a laborer who works for you? No, we don't believe that at all. We believe that until that last breath is breathed, no matter what, we believe in the sanctity of human life. And the sanctity of human life has been used to discuss uh, obviously political hot-button issue around abortion, but the sanctity of human life is all-encompassing. It says that God creates life and we hold it sacred. And that no matter who you are, we don't have the authority to give or take away life. God establishes it and we value it. And no matter who we are, we are equally valuable because we are life that God has created. Correct? At the same time, with that said, God also creates a system. He creates a structure. And within that structure, there are different ways that we deal with different positions. We value each person individually, and yet we value positions differently. We have to. That's why he says, pray for the authorities, honor the king. Because what we recognize is that when God puts a boss over us at work, whether or not that person does what they're supposed to do, the position of authority is essential to everything else functioning well. And so there has to be a certain level of respect given to that position. 
a couple weeks ago. I think it was actually Worship Sunday. It wasn't Worship Sunday here, just an amazing Sunday. It's amazing when we give God the respect that he really is needed, and we get together and respect God. Amazing things just happen. But after that Sunday, um, I was tired. That was an exhausting Sunday, but we were headed out to Lancaster County because uh, our boys had a birthday party to go to. One of their friends out there had a birthday. And so we drive out to Lancaster County, and we drop the kids off in Lidditz at a at a birthday party, and then Jen and I go and grab a bite to eat, and we're headed back to pick the kids up, and I'm getting more and more tired. Most families have a default driver, right? The one who drives usually in the car. I mean, you can interchange, but usually there's kind of the default driver. And um, the, uh, generationally in my family, the, the default driver, the gene, did not carry through. Uh, because the, the gender switched. My mom is the default driver in the uh, the senior uh, Deering clan, but in my family, I'm the default driver, and I drive all the time. But I realized that I was really tired, and this was going to be tough. I was going to be falling asleep. So I decided to go get a cup of coffee, and I typically don't drink caffeine anymore. I stopped drinking caffeine, but uh, th- there's there's a time and a place where you know, you sacrifice on behalf of the family and, and on the well-being. And so I, uh, we went and stopped at Wawa, and I, I was getting decaf, and I was like, no, I better pour a little bit of the, the caffeine in there. So I pour a little of the caffeine in there, and then we, we get in the car, buckle up, put our cups in the holders, and we head down to our friend's house and pick up the boys. Load them up, and we start heading on the road. I'd been sipping on the coffee, and we didn't even get out of the development until I realized this coffee's not going to do the trick. I'm in trouble. My family's in trouble. I'm like, Jen, you mind driving? And she's like, no, that's fine. So we do the old fire drill, you know? Get out, switch, switch seats, get in, and uh, I, we buckle our seatbelts and we're ready to go. What's the first thing that I do now? <laughs> Telling her how to drive? No, that's funny. <laughs> Sounds like experience talking. <laughs> <laughs> confessional moment we have the booth right over here we can take care of that one three Hail Marys you'll be good to go that's hilarious <laughs> um, actually what I did was I switched the coffee cups uh, why did I switch the coffee cups Well, we had two coffee cups. We both got coffee, but I had to switch them in the different cup holders. Not because they're side to side, and on the different sides of the car, they're actually front and back. See, what happens is, is that they're, they're, it's kind of awkward. The one in the front is really easy to get to, but the one behind it is kind of wedged between the one in front and the center console, and it's a little bit trickier to get to. And so in, what happens is, is I'm, whenever we're driving together, I'm almost always the one who has my coffee in the front because... When you're driving, you need to keep your eye on the road. You can't be fiddling around trying to get this thing to work. You just got to reach down and grab your coffee. Well, we switched, and I get in, and I go to take a sip of my coffee, and I realize that my coffee is in the spot where it usually is, and I look down at it, and I'm kind of thinking, I'm like, I guess I should probably switch these so it makes it easier for Jen. And I'm like, but I kind of like having the one in the front because it's easier to use. (laughs) I switched it anyway. You know, I loved my wife. But the truth is, is that, She's the one in the driver's seat at this point. And when she's in the driver's seat, there's some things that go along with being in the driver's seat, and you have to know when to yield when you're following someone who's in the driver's seat. It doesn't have to do with the value. Is Jen more important or am I more important? 
No. Are one, is one of us more valuable? No. But whoever's in the driver's seat, there's certain things that we have to do. We have to yield and honor and respect the, the driver position in order to allow things to function well. And this is the way it goes with authority. God puts a system in place in our world that allows things to function somewhat well, regardless of the character of people. But we have to stick with the system. And we have to honor the position of authority. And unfortunately, we get abused by that authority because people take advantage of that position of authority because people are selfish. And they're like, well, I get this cup holder, and I get this, and I get that, and I get this, and it can feel very abusive. Does that give us the right to grow independent from authority? No, it doesn't. There's these great passages in Scripture, these great stories in Scripture. I wanted to read all of them to you, but frankly, we're going to run out of time if I do. I'm going to tell you two stories. One of them, at least, is a story you're very familiar with. It's a story of a person who had to submit in the face of terrible circumstances. We talked about him last week. His name's David. And David has this amazing thing happen to him where he's out there and he's wrestling lions and wrestling bears and hanging out with God on a hillside, playing his harp, connecting with God. And even though he's kind of on the like, lower rung of the whole system, you kind of get the feeling that David's in a good spot. You know, His heart's connecting with God and it's all good. But then things change. This guy Samuel shows up and he pours oil on his head and he tells him that he's going to be the next king. Well, bye-bye la-la land. You know, because now all of a sudden you're going to have responsibility and your life is going to go crazy because you're going to be the next king of Israel. And sure enough, he goes and he cares for his king, he cares for his, uh, the kingdom of Israel, and he ends up taking out this giant that no one else will. And everyone, yay, David. And instantly, those who were in authority, King Saul, recognizes what he's done and promotes him, but at the same time, something happens in Saul's heart. What happens in Saul's heart? jealousy because he's in the position of authority he likes the cup holder that he has and he doesn't want anyone taking his cup holder right and so he likes his position and he wants to pass the position of his cup holder on to his son Jonathan who should also be able to put his cup in this cup holder he thinks that it's his right to have this position that's not his right there's nothing valuable about Saul he's in this position because God put him there David on the other hand, recognizes this. And he never tries to take the position. Saul, however, can't handle the success of David because he feels threatened more and more because he likes the position more than he likes God. And so he's, there's this real tension. He said, we're told that every day he seeks David trying to kill him. We're told that in 2 Samuel. Every day he's stalking him, trying to kill him, trying to take him out. Get rid of the threat. David never turns his heart. This is what's amazing about David. It's, it's not only that he doesn't cause some rebellion. He never turns his heart against Saul. He gets chased all over creation, and he ends up down in this place called En Gedi in the desert. And he's back in this cave with all of his guys, and you know what happens, right? What happens? Saul has to go to the bathroom. And Saul goes into his cave to go to the bathroom. While Saul's in there, David's guys remind him of something that God had told him. They said, hey, David, remember what God told you? He said that he would bring your enemy right to you so that you could do whatever you wanted with him. This is the moment. God said it. 
do what you're going to do. David sneaks up in the cave very quietly. And I can imagine what's going through his head as he's beginning to see the silhouette of Saul. I was anointed by Samuel to be king. I love this country and I love my God. This man has trashed the name of God in this country. He has dishonored over and over again the one who I serve. He abuses the people and he doesn't listen to God anymore. We're not functioning the way we're supposed to function. God has put a call on my heart to lead people past this. I'm tired of running, and this guy has treated me with absolute disrespect. God told me that he would put him in my hands to do whatever I wanted with. It's a pretty good line of reasoning as to why he could take out Saul in this moment. And yet he doesn't. He cuts a corner of Saul's robe off and sneaks back into the cave. And before he even comes out of the cave, he begins to cry in, because of the guilt that he feels even from cutting the corner of Saul's robe. Because what David understands is that this position of authority is not something that he has any authority over. He has no say in what happens in that position. There is only one person who establishes the position of authority. God. And when he disrespected the king by making a mockery of him and sneaking up and showing that he could best the king, he began to feel guilt because he had just dishonored the position of authority that God put in place. It's not just that he just dishonored Saul. It's that he dishonored God. And he walks out of the cave, and with tears in his eyes, he says, Father, that's what he calls Saul, Father, I'm so sorry, but I could have killed you, and I don't want there to be bad blood between us. Please, I want to serve you. I want to help you win, you know? And his heart always stays toward him. And you can just imagine all those guys in the back of the cave who just want to kill David in this moment. And we're told that there are moments where they want to revolt against David because they're disgusted with the fact that he has a shot at the title and he could have finished the game and instead he submits to this madman lunatic who's possessed by Satan and is chasing them all around God's creation. And David is a weak coward who won't finish the job according to them. The truth is, is that David had a submission to the position of authority that most of us don't know anything about. He believed in God in ways that are hard for us to fathom. And what God was doing with David is he was laying a foundation. Because what happens is, is David will become king. And any person who steps into a position of authority can so easily begin to find their value in that position of authority and begin to get a little bit arrogant and begin to take advantage of that position of authority. The thing that makes David such a phenomenal king is this moment when his son Absalom rebels against him. And his son Absalom begins to do horrible things. And he decides that he can do the job better than David can. And he decides to, to have a coup and overthrow the kingdom. David could have done whatever he wanted. You know? Tackles lions, kills bears, drops Goliath. 
This is his son. He could take care of that. But he doesn't. Because what David recognizes is, is his identity isn't in this position of authority. That his value, he's still the shepherd boy who hangs out with God out here. And if it's time for someone else to take the throne, take the throne. Who am I? Who am I? God put me in here. Maybe God's just disposing me. It's okay. And he steps away and lets this whole thing with Absalom take place in Jerusalem. And what ends up happening in the long and the short of it is, is that Absalom ends up dying and being killed. And instead of David rejoicing because he's got his throne back, he weeps because of the loss of his son. And he never turns his heart against his son, those who serve him, just like he never turned his heart against Saul, he who he followed. The truth is, is that selfish followers make selfish leaders, and humble leaders make humble, humble followers make humble leaders. Because the difference is, is whether we trust in human authority or whether we trust in God. And when we trust in God, we're able to submit to human authority. But when we trust in humans, we get ourselves in trouble when it comes to submission. We either grow codependent or we grow rebellious. The other story is the story of Rehoboam, Jeroboam. We talked about Rehoboam last week. You remember Rehoboam last week? He was the one who got the bad friends, who influenced him the wrong way. We called him his Harvard frat buddies, who, who told him the wrong thing, and he didn't listen to the wise wisdom. Instead, he listened to the other voices. Do you remember when Rehoboam, when the kingdom divided, there was another person in the scene who Israel brought to the, to the table to kind of replace him? Jeroboam, right? There was Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam, that's not the first time we hear about him in Scripture. The first time, well, an earlier time we hear about him in Scripture is in 1 Kings chapter 11. I'm going to have you stand as we read this, 26 to 40. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerida, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Okay, so what we're about to hear is how Jeroboam rebelled against the king. This is not Rehoboam he's rebelling against. This is Solomon, Rehoboam's dad, David's son. Here's the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and had filled the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. So Jeroboam here is the rising young star who's doing a great job, much like David did for Saul. And he gets promoted, much like David did for Saul. Now, verse 29. About that time, Jeroboam was going out to Jerusalem. And Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. Here comes this prophet with a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. And Ahijah took a hold of the cloak he was wearing, and he tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give it to you ten, and give to you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. 
I will do this because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, uh, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Moloch, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. So he's saying, the kingdom's about to come to ruin. It's about to divide because they're worshiping false gods. You're going to get 10 of the tribes. I'm going to save a little portion of it for David's line. Verse 34. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I will have, him, I will have made him a ruler. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose to observe my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands. That's Rehoboam. This has been the prophecy about what we talked about last week about Rehoboam. And give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, Rehoboam, that David, my servant, may also have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. You will do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David my servant did. I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and I will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Does anything in that sound rebellious to you? Did Jeroboam do anything rebellious? He was just given a prophecy by the prophet that says, you are going to be receiving this kingdom. I'm tearing it out of this guy's hands because he's doing something wrong. Just like David had the prophecy over him because Saul was doing things wrong and God was moving it. Exact same situation. Now listen, this is the last verse, verse 40. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak the king and stayed there until Solomon's death. Solomon responds the exact same way that Saul responds. He gets jealous about this young guy who's doing a great job, and he wants to off him because he's a threat to the kingdom. That is the end of the story, and the beginning of the story tells us that this is the account of how Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon. But I don't see any sign of rebellion in the whole thing. As a matter of fact, it sounds like he was exactly like David, doesn't it? You can have a seat. The truth is, is that we have to wait a little bit until we find out what actually is happening with Jeroboam. You see, it doesn't tell us any action of rebellion that happens here. Because rebellion is not just about having a coup, overthrowing the authority. Rebellion is a state of the heart. Rebellion is about whether or not in our hearts we honor and yield to the position of respect that, or the position of authority that God has put in our lives. It's about whether our hearts are slanderous and bitter and rebellious against authority or whether our hearts are yielding and supportive and prayerful for authority. This man was told he was next in line. David was told he was next in line. This man was abused David was abused. The difference is, is that David does everything he can, even past the last breath of Saul, in order to honor him. You remember when Saul tried to fall on his sword to kill himself because he didn't want the, he didn't want the Philistines to get him, and he couldn't quite finish the job, so he told the armor bearer to help him out, and the armor bearer does, and he comes and tells David, Saul's dead. David says, how'd he die? He says, well, he asked me to help him kill himself. So I did. So David kills him. 
because David's like, you're disobedient. That is the position of authority that God has put in place. And even if he asked you to do it, you do not violate the position of authority. Not because you love or trust Saul, but because you trust God and the position that he's put in place. Here's the difference. Jeroboam, when Solomon dies and Rehoboam takes over, he starts rubbing his hands and he's like, it's probably my time for the throne. And now, when they're having a problem and they find weak Rehoboam who will listen to the wrong person and there's a rebellious spirit in the people of Israel, Jeroboam kind of just walks along with them. He doesn't start a coup. He doesn't have a rebellion. He just doesn't allow his spirit to turn toward the position of authority that God has put in place in the king. He doesn't support him. He doesn't pray for him. He doesn't want Rehoboam to succeed. He wants himself to succeed. He's like that spirit, the horse. Get off my back. I'd like it if I could do things my way. The truth is, is our submission to authority, it's a tough spot because we find ourselves in places where it's hard to trust. Does God tell us to trust our authorities? Does he tell us to completely trust our authorities? I don't know anywhere in the scripture where it tells us to trust our authorities. It tells us to honor our authorities, to respect our authorities, but it tells us to fear God and to trust God. See, there's a big difference between whether or not we can trust our authorities and whether or not we are called to honor and respect them. I want to I read as our last passage of Scripture, the one that I read to you earlier in the, in the service. Uh, uh, this is um, from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The picture here is, we live in a world of darkness. If we live the way we're supposed to, then people will see the goodness of God. Now this is how he breaks it down for us. How do we do that? Submit yourselves, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Submit yourselves to every authority instituted among men, whether the king is the supreme authority or the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Listen to verse 16. Live as free men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. When we believe that authority is the one who provides for us, when authority is the one who takes care of us, we will inevitably be angry and frustrated and bitter when they treat us inappropriately and when the selfish human leaders do their thing, we will treat them inappropriately because we think they're supposed to be serving us and we're supposed to be receiving what we need from them and when they disappoint us, we'll get angry and we'll get bitter and we'll talk bad about them with our friends and we'll do all the things we shouldn't do and we're frustrated and grand they're not doing their job and they're doing a bad job but the but the truth is is that there's this other option where we don't receive what we need from human authority we receive what we need from our father in heaven and when human authorities disappoint us we don't have to react negatively to it because we still believe that our security is fine god's got me we still believe that our provision is fine god's going to provide for me this passage in 1 Peter was written to a bunch 
of men and women who were about to face one of the most brutal persecutions to ever touch our planet. His name is Nero. And what he would do is he would take these people and he'd strap them to poles and use them as torches in his palace. He had all sorts of mistakes and he needed someone to take the fallout for his mistakes. And so he blamed it on the Christians. And if you wouldn't recant on your faith, then he would use you as a torch in his palace. And so they're about to face terrible, terrible things. And what is Peter telling them to do? Submit and honor the king? He's telling them to fear God, to keep their game face on, to continue to bring glory and honor to God, instead of growing bitter against this authority that's going to treat them inappropriately. Trust God and be able to have character all the way through and honor and submit without getting my pride up. My pride's in Jesus. My hope is in eternity with God. Do what you want to me. The truth is, I don't trust the authority. I trust God. I submit, honor, and pray for the authority and turn my heart toward Him and wish Him the best and want to serve and submit however I can. But who I trust is God. Those Christians were not the first ones to be sacrificial lambs. Jesus is the one who is the sacrificial lamb. And it all comes together when you see Jesus standing in front of his authority. And Pilate finds himself in a bind. And he doesn't know which way to go. Because he's got the pressure from the authority above him. He's got the pressure from the people underneath of him. And there's this tension. And he's trying to figure it out. And he's trying to figure out how he deals with his authorities. And how he does the right thing in the midst of all of that. And he does not fear God. Instead, he fears his king. And he fears the people who are putting pressure on him. He fears everyone but God. There's one person in the situation who has a level head. Jesus. He's the one being abused. He's the one being beaten. He's the one with sticks to the head. He's the one with whips and chains on his back. And he's the only one who still has a level head. And the reason is, is because he trusts something different than everyone else trusts. He fears something different than everyone else fears. You see, the truth is, is when he's standing in front of Pilate, Pilate wants to get what he wants. And so he says to Jesus, he tries to intimidate him, and he says, Jesus, don't you know that I have the authority to take your life? And he tries to intimidate Jesus and push him and bully him in order to get him to submit. And Jesus, with not an ounce of fear in his heart or in his eyes, stares right back at Pilate with love and with care. And he says, you would have no authority except that which is given by my Father in heaven. In other words, I will submit to you because I trust my dad. And he told me to. So I trust him. You can do whatever you want, and you'll have to answer for that. I have to do what I have to do, which is honor and submit and respect you, because that's what my dad told me to do. So who are those authority figures in our life? Who are they? The ones that have disappointed us? You know, the ones who have hurt us? The ones who don't do things the way that, that we want? It's legit. We get treated inappropriately. That's legit. But do we trust God with that? Or do we try to push our authorities to do something different? The truth is, is that we're called to honor the king. Fear God. Trust God. But honor those in authority. By so doing, we accomplish our mission 
in the midst of oppression, in the midst of darkness, Jesus rises as a shining light of one who trusts true authority, the authority of God. It's a tough thing to trust the authority of God in a place where there's inappropriate authority being pushed on us. But our call is to submit to the living one, to follow in his ways. Let's pray. God, it's a tough word today because all of us have experienced moments where we really feel chained in, where we feel just dealt with inappropriately, where we've been disappointed by those who have authority over us, where we see things a lot differently. And the humanity of that authority hurts us. And frankly, the the humanity of our own selves and our own rebellion also hurts us. But if you're going to send us out to be people of light and darkness, we recognize that we have to somehow reveal that we trust you in the midst of all of those situations. You have created structure for our goodness. You've created authority for our goodness. So God, we want to learn to trust you by praying for our authority, by caring for our authority. And so God, without any ounce of condemnation or hopelessness, we ask that you would turn our hearts to trust in you and in your power and in your authority in our lives so that we can deal with these human authorities the way we need to. We'll thank you and praise you as you give us the strength to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.